Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The testimony and explanation of Evangelical Friends Mission's five-year goal for planting new works that you're about to hear was originally presented at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, November 6th, 2022. You'll hear from Nathan Macy, a high school student who feels called to missionary service, and from his dad, Matt Macy, EFM's Director of Mobilization. Nathan will be the first person you hear after Pastor Mike's opening prayer. Got to pray for Nathan as he comes to speak this morning, that you would encourage him and that he would speak the words that you desire for us to hear. And I pray that your spirit would work through him in Jesus name. Amen. Hello, my name is Nathan Macy. Thank you for having me today. I'm here with my family, uh, my parents, Matt and Carrie and my brother, Caleb, and we're thankful to be invited here today. I'm a senior in high school just turned 18 last month, and I was just going to share with you guys some of my testimony and my calling to missions, and then a little bit about EFM and their Luke 10 trips and the Luke 10 initiative and their five-year goal. So first of all, I grew up like in a Christian family, nothing too special really, a great family, of course. I'm really thankful for them. They're very special to me. But nothing like crazy about my life personally, I guess, until I got older. But I did get to grow up in a family that was surrounded by missions and where we always prayed for missionaries. And I got to meet a lot of missionaries myself and just hear about them. And then a lot of them stayed at our house even. And so I got to hear a lot of stories and was really inspired by them as a young kid, but never really like thought that would be what I would do in the future. And then as I grew up, I grew closer to God. The most impactful moments where I really started to feel God's love were as a high schooler with some youth events at a youth retreat and at camp, at Camp Quaker Haven. I really had some powerful moments with God where I was filled with emotion and I just really felt God's love in those moments. And that really changed the way I lived and my my life really and after i felt those moments i realized from hearing through other people from the missions that some people around the world have never felt that kind of love and have never even heard about jesus never experienced that kind of love or that feeling and it really like touched me and it hurt to know that some people might never feel that or never experience god's love So that started my calling to missions. And I was invited by my dad to go to Mexico for a future missionary trip, is what they called it, the first one. And I was invited as a translator because I know Spanish. But then it turns out they didn't need me as a translator, but they said I could go anyway. And I was like, well, I would like to go to learn more about missions and that would be interesting to me. And I love Mexico, so it worked out. And I went and that really improved my calling or furthered my calling towards missions. And I got to be with other kids like me, other future missionaries, not all my age, but some my age. And it just really furthered my calling and helped me feel more sure that that was what I was called to, even though I still had a lot of questions, not sure 
like where I would go or when I would go or anything like that. I really learned a lot and really felt like that was the right thing. And then through a lot of other things, a lot other events, I was encouraged more and was able to discern more what my calling was. And so eventually this March or April, I think it was April this year, we went to Mexico on the first Luke 10 trip. And that was a good moment, a big moment for me. And then also a future missionary retreat where I got to learn from a lot of retired missionaries and current missionaries and other future missionaries and just a lot of people. It was really powerful moment for me. And then also I got to go to Rwanda, Africa for the first time in August and missed the first year of school. <laughs> first week of my senior year at school. And we got to learn from the, the pastors there and the and Brad and Chelsea who are there. They've really encouraged me a lot and taught me a lot. So I guess next I wanted to talk about EFM and their five-year goal. So EFM's five-year goal has been something very big, very powerful since it was started in 2020 to send 10 new missionary households from North America to launch five new fields by 2025. That's a pretty big goal to like actually make a goal instead of just saying we're going to do something and not actually put an end date or specific details like that. I think that's really pushed us as a, as a church to send out missionaries. And so that's helped us to like be more on fire to explore new places and to send out people and raise up new missionaries, whoever those might be. So that's been something really cool to see happen and all the Luke 10 trips. I was just at the Luke 10 think tank and we kind of gave a report on all the trips that have happened and it was just a really cool experience to see all the different things that are going on in this world with other countries sending their own missionaries and God's really working a lot right now. So I guess the next thing, unreached people groups, it's people who will never hear about Jesus unless someone else from another people group comes to tell them about Jesus, tell them the gospel. And is a really big part of my testimony, I guess, was uh, recently in Rwanda. I just got back. That was the most recent trip. Brad Carpenter was sharing in front of the pastors and showing them some statistics of the unreached people group and the frontier unreached people groups, which means that they have basically no one, no Christians. And it was like there a huge percentage of the world population is in that group. Like, and then he showed the map of all the people of all the countries in the world where there are unreached people groups. My heart started beating really fast and it just felt clear to me that that's what I was called to. So there are 17,000 people groups in the world, 7,400 of them are unreached. 42% of all people groups are unreached and 3 billion people or 42% of the world population live in these people groups. That really stuck out to me and really felt important. And then frontier unreached people groups are the people with 0.1% or fewer Christians in that area. 
and there are 5,000 frontier people groups with a population of almost 2 billion people. And that's 25% of the world. So that really means that we need to send out a lot more missionaries. And so that's been really important to me and to a lot of other people, especially at EFM, to send out new missionaries. And in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, it says, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard of him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. And the Great Commission is too big for anyone to accomplish alone and too important not to do together. So now we're going to talk about the Luke 10 initiative. I'm going to invite my dad to come up and help me share a little bit about the Luke 10 trips and EFM's goals. But basically, on the trips, we would send out future missionaries like me or even older people or younger people, people who are exploring a call to missions, and then also people with missions experience and influential church leaders, and they go on a Luke 10 trip. And if you don't know what a Luke 10 trip is, it basically is when you explore a new field to launch a new field and send missionaries there to start a field. So what we did on, a, on our Luke 10 trip to Mexico, which is, it can be different depending on the trip, but we went to Mexico and basically asked people questions, just strangers in the, in the town, if there was any churches that they know of or if they went to church, questions about their faith. And like we asked them if they would want us to start a church in their area. And we were surprised to see the answers and how some of them were really open and some of them were very close to having a new church be started. And then also the people in other countries, like in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, sending their own missionaries and their influential leaders and stuff. And so there's some specific goals where this year was like sending out all the Luke 10 trips. Almost all of them got sent out a couple hours next year and exploring next steps on those, where to launch fields. And we're also looking for people that we need to send. So there's a lot of discernment in there. How do you know who's going to go or where you're going to go? So we've just been really exploring that and um, discerning. So now Mexico, I'll talk a little bit about that. My dad also went on that trip, but he went on a couple other ones, so I'll have him share about those. In Mexico, we went to 16 different towns in three different states in eight days, I think. We would just travel around and ask questions, talk to local people, and it was really cool for me to be able to speak directly to them without a translator, which I think was a cool impactful part of it, but also translating for my dad and for other people to ask questions and learn. And so in the first like four or five uh, cities we went to, there was a great need, of course, and there is almost everywhere you go. And we decided as a group that we could send missionaries here, we could start a church here, and that it would be a good idea. But it wasn't until the sixth city that there was a really something different about the city. There was a very big invitation and openness from the people there. And there was like basically no churches there, maybe one. And I think it was not very big or popular. 
And so it was interesting to see their openness. We talked to a bunch of random like local store owners and people down the block, and we had a very different experience with the openness from that group. The city is growing because a lot of people are moving there, a lot of young people because of lower living costs and stuff. And so there was just a lot of opportunity right there. And so we'd, we'd been like walking down a street in one direction, another group went in another direction. And we had a great experience in our street and we were like wondering what the other groups thought or what they had experienced. And so when we got back, we met in the, the square, the town center or whatever, and there was a party going on. All of the groups were there. There was like 20 different kids jump roping and playing with balls and also adults, maybe potential leaders in the church. We were talking to them. Everyone was having great experience with them. And so we just really had a very different experience in that city. And as a group felt like that was the place. If we were gonna send one, it would be to that place. So that was Mexico. I also learned a lot on my, my own calling and discernment there. The next one was to Ecuador and Peru, the Schwark people group, which I was not a part of that, but we sent a lot of people, a lot of good stuff on that trip. And then Greece, they also went. And then, so this is the uh, can-go criteria, we call it. Um, which is an acrostic. It stands for champion, C for champion. And a champion is basically someone who has a passion for that place. Someone who like says that they have to start a field here. Someone who is, feels really strongly about that place and will go. If no one else goes, they will go themselves. And so they feel very strongly that we need to start a field there. And then A for affirmation, just confirming with the people there in that place or in the U.S. affirming that that is a place. And then and for need, there has to be a need. Um, we have to have the right gifting, G. And then opportunity, there has to be a good opportunity there to be able to just start a new field. And then Eastern Europe, so they went into Budapest and Hungary. I wish I remembered more of the details. My dad knows more of it. Okay, and then Tanzania. I'm going to have my dad come up and talk a little bit about since he went on this trip. I'm along with Thane Thompson from the U.S., Thomas Moore, who's another future missionary, and Brad Carpenter, and then also Fidel and Solomon. So I'm really enjoying hearing this boy talk about EFM's goals and, and know a lot of story um, behind his heart. Um, we've really seen a complete change in his life since you know he kind of mentioned that when he was invited to go to that first future missionary train trip we were inviting him to go as a translator because it was kind of a last minute trip it was probably one of the quickest turnarounds we've ever <laughs> done for a trip like that from planning to actually going because at that time with COVID no one was going on trips anywhere and we had all these future missionaries that were they were saying we want to get field experience but no one's going anywhere so how do we do it and, and kind of my youth pastor heart came out and I just said, I'm going to plan a trip and we're going to go. And so I was trying to think of a place we could go that if flights wouldn't go because of COVID, we could drive it if we had to. And so Aguas Calientes is where we went. We ended up having no problem flying and all. But anyway, uh, I had invited Nathan to go as a translator if I needed it. But then I was like, oh, Nathan, uh, 
I, I think we have enough translators, so you don't need to be burdened with making the trip if you don't have time or whatever. And he's like, but Dad, I think I'm called to be a missionary. <laughs> you know, we had just had a future missionary retreat in Colorado, and I hadn't invited him. <laughs> he wasn't on our radar. So right under our nose, sometimes there's people around us that are called to be missionaries that we have no idea. And it's been interesting in this journey because nine years ago I had an experience in Bangladesh that now I'm remembering. And that experience was, you know, I've been to Bangladesh many, many times. And that's where I've really been around a lot of the unreached people and also the persecuted church and really had a personal burden for, the, for peoples like that. In a lot of places in Asia, there's places where people have never heard of Jesus or in the case of Bangladesh, they've never seen a Christian. You know, that, that frontier people group you mentioned, the 0.1%. It kind of gets it in your mind. It helps with perspective to realize that most people there, they don't know anyone who knows anyone who knows anyone who's a Christian. So you know, around here, people know Christians. They know of churches. They have access to the gospel in some way. But there's places in the world where they don't know anyone who knows anyone who knows anyone in a Christian. That's mind-boggling. In Nepal, we've been places where they've never, ever, never heard of Jesus. They've never heard of that person. They've never heard anything about that story. It's hard to fathom, and yet we can get on a plane and go down a goat path for a day or so and be among people like that today. But anyway, we were in Bangladesh, and what Albert would do is he would take us to a place, and we'd get out of the van, and he'd say, okay, now, this is a group of people who uh, decided to follow Christ uh, four months ago. There's seven families here in this new church. Would you please encourage them? So we'd get out and have fellowship with them and encourage them, maybe give an impromptu message and... Um, maybe even play some games and pray with them, et cetera. And then other times we'd get out of the van and he'd say, this is a group of people who, in this case, Muslims, who have heard, have been hearing about Jesus every week. They've been gathering and hearing about Jesus, but none of them have accepted Christ. So could you please share with them the good news? And so here we are with this group of Muslims. And one of the things that I do when I sit with, with a group like that is that as we're sitting there, I'm looking in their eyes. Of course, you know, people that you've never met, complete strangers, you don't know anything about their personal life or about their personal faith. You don't know anything about them. And they don't know anything about us, but we're all curious about each other. And we're looking at each other in the eye as we're getting ready to start. And I would pray, um, John 6, would the Father draw these people to the Son? Just like I pray that the Father would draw me and my family to the Son. And then John 16, would the Holy Spirit please show these people, just like me and my family, but the Holy Spirit show them where they have brokenness in their life and a need for a Savior, where they have sin and need for a Savior. And in the midst of praying for them, I had a moment where God asked me, Matt, would you give your life if by giving your life these people would accept in their minds and in their hearts that Jesus is their Savior? Would you give your life for that? And it was a moment for me. It was an emotional moment. But I agreed. Yes, I would give my life if by giving my life these people would accept Christ. And so then I felt really inspired, and I was ready to preach. And I don't know what the translator said, but I think the Holy Spirit may have said something that day. I really felt like the Holy Spirit helped in those moments. And at the end of my message, telling the good news about Jesus and inviting them to make a decision to follow Jesus, I felt God say, you need to tell them what you agreed <laughs> a little bit earlier before this message in front of the missionaries, in front of the team that I had brought from the U.S., and in front of these Muslims that don't know Christ. You need to tell them. So... So I, I told them, you know, before, before I got up to speak, before I was talking, I had the sense that God asked me if I would give my life. And I said yes. You know, and it was a very fresh, raw. I had emotion in those moments. It was very fresh and raw. 
And God interrupted me while I was saying those things and said, Matt, what about your four sons? What about Joel? What about Luke? What about Nathan? And what about Caleb? Would you give their lives? If by giving their lives, these people would accept Christ, would you give their lives? And I was very emotional and in front of those people. And I felt like it was a dirty trick by God, honestly. <laughs> right in that moment, in front of these strangers on the other side of the planet, Muslims of all people. And you know how Americans, especially nine, ten years ago, <laughs> how we felt about, you know, there was a stereotypical feeling. And I said yes. And when I left that day, I became angry. And that's a whole other story. I was angry for about three months. But the rawness of what that means to give life. And then nine years later, I mean, this guy, nine years ago, he was nine years old. <laughs> you know, these little cute little kids in my house that I said, yes, I would give their lives. And of course, as I mature in my understanding of giving life, I would give my life even if they didn't accept. If God called me and God said, and if God calls Nathan to go, and people don't accept. If God calls us to go, we will be obedient to go, whether we have fruit or not. So to be here and hear him give his story and to think of that, <laughs> to think of those moments, and that happened before I started with EFM, before I even knew EFM was gonna ask me to be one of the directors at EFM. So I think it's even a corporate, there's a, something corporate about that for us as a church, that we have to learn to be willing to give our life, and we also have to be willing to give our kids' lives, our parents' lives, um, our siblings' lives, whatever it means, um, we have to be willing to give. So anyway, th that's not what Nathan called me up here for. <laughs> but it was on my heart, and we really do appreciate the invitation. And yeah, anyway, uh, we made a trip to Tanzania, as Nathan said, and this is a really cool time, and we really appreciate all that Pratt Friends does to support missions. But we have a history in Mid-America since 1934, Back when we were called Kansas Yearly Meeting, we uh, um, sent missionaries to Burundi. And we sent a lot of missionaries to Burundi between 34 and 83. And when we stopped sending mostly after 83. But we still have a deep relationship with Burundi Friends. It's the largest evangelical French church in the world. This morning they'll have something like 70,000 people among their churches. And, and they're also increasing their speed of growth. I want to plot it out sometime, but it's hard to get all the statistics. But in the last decade or so, decade and a half, it's just really spiked because they have it in their DNA that you're not accepted as a local church unless you've planted a church who's planting a church. <laughs> so you, you are not a mature local church until you have a granddaughter church plant. That's just their DNA. But anyway, they've had this vision for Tanzania. And you know how sometimes someone has this idea and they say, I want to do this, but I'm not sure I can do it. It seems like a big plan, a big goal. In fact, our five-year goal is an example of that. You have this idea of something you want to do, and then when you find out someone else wants to do it, it kind of, oh, maybe I can do it, or at least I can try it. And that's happening all around the world. That's also happening amongst the yearly meetings of the U.S. Some of our yearly meetings, even some of our bigger ones, they like the idea of starting a field, but it feels oh, we don't know enough about missions. We don't have enough expertise. We've lost, we've lost some of that, that edge that maybe we would have had years ago. I, I'm just a little bit nervous. Do we have the capacity to do it? And then you find out, oh, well, 
all these yearly meetings that come together as EFM, we're all saying we'll help each other. And so it kind of takes that, I'm not sure I can do it or I can't do it into a, I can do it or I will try to do it. And then that's happening around the world. And, and Burundi is one of those examples. They've had this vision for quite some time, especially after 2013. We had a time with them in 2013. They set a goal that they would start a mission, a new mission among unreached people in Tanzania. But then to actually take the step to go out and do it, well, I don't know if we can do it. I don't know if we know how to do it. I don't. And they're the biggest church. They have capacity that is mind-boggling, and yet they have this, well, I'm not sure I can do it mentality. And so there's something about us together, especially Mid-America. Mid-America is the main supporter of this work in Burundi that they've said, I think we can try it and I think we can do it. And they have gotten aggressive. And we went from Dar es Salaam into some other uh, villages, especially among the Kutu and the Zaramo, where there's no churches. And uh, we're talking out in the bush. And there was this intimidation by the Burundians and a little bit by us about reaching the Muslims. Because oh, the Burundians, the Muslims that live among their cities are fundamental Muslims, hardcore Muslims. And the Burundians are like, we don't know how to talk to those people. We, don't, we can't figure out how to penetrate. We don't understand the worldview. And so it's a big leap. But we found out in Tanzania that they may call themselves a Muslim just like someone in Burundi or Rwanda might call themselves a Christian, and yet they're still going to the witch doctor. They're still worshiping their local ancestry gods. So they're really a spiritist, African, coldest religions. And the Africans realize, oh, we know their faith barriers. We know their spiritual strongholds. We know how to address that. They aren't Muslim the way they thought they were Muslim. They're really local African religions. So anyway, the Burundians are really excited and they have a goal that no later than 2027, they're going to send out at least two missionary households to Tanzania. And they're thinking two missionary households to another place. And they're wondering about something like South Sudan. So again, that whole inspiration, how we can encourage each other and help each other decide to do something big. The Burundians have made that goal. There's also a, a school that we met in Dar es Salaam that's been training Central African, especially Tanzanian, but some Burundian, Rwandan, and Kenyan missionaries to go out to the unreached people. One of the superintendents, Fidel, in Burundi, he's declared, we need to send some of our future missionaries right now to that school. We were so impressed with the school. In fact, I was so impressed, I was picturing sending Nathan there. Like, if we have American missionaries that join the Burundians, and the Burundians go to school there, why not send our kids to that same school in Dar es Salaam. It's a one-year intensive training on reaching the unreached. Why not send them there and they could learn language in that setting before they go with the Burundians to the field? I mean, that's one of the ideas that we had there. I, I could tell you a whole bunch of stories about things that people are doing among some of the bush that they're finding receptivity. It's hard. It's not easy, but I'm going to be careful because I'll just talk and talk about Tanzania. What's the next? Nathan. Yeah, and then South Sudan, we just got back from that a couple weeks ago. I was with Brad, the other American, and then four leaders from Rwanda. And again, as far as champions and affirmation, the Rwandans are saying, we are, we are going to go. There's no question that we're going to start a new work in South Sudan. And this is an unstable country, a wartime type country. So we visited refugee camps near Juba. And some of the unreached peoples are among those refugee camps. And then we went out several hours drive to villages, you know, round mud huts with grass roofs. The thing that was unique for me in South Sudan is that I could walk up to someone in the middle of a village and talk English, and we would have a conversation in English. And I haven't done that anywhere in the world. So that was an interesting 
and we're talking very seriously tribal, like they're very intense about their tribe. Like if I would walk up to someone out in the middle of nowhere and say, my name's Matt Macy, I'm from the United States, I'm new to South Sudan, I'm trying to learn about this place. What tribe are you? <laughs> and then they would say, well, I'm Dinka. Oh, well, how do you know that you're a Dinka? And they would start showing where they had cut themselves when they were 18 as part of the rites of passage, what patterns those are that make you Dinka or Merle or Malungo or Mandari or Cholo, whatever it is, they have different styles of markings. Very, very tribal. And so it was really fun, first of all, to learn about the culture because they were very open about the different um, rites of passage, their, their uh, dowry system, they are appalled that we do not pay cows for our brides. They believe that we give no value to our women. You give no sacrifice for your wife. You don't care about your wives. But the cool thing is the Rwandans are watching this, and, and the churches that we saw um, were very tribal. This church is this tribe. In other words, segregated. And the Rwandans, when the South Sudanese would ask, well, what tribe are you? I mean, in their culture, that's very inappropriate. You don't ask, what tribe are you? We are Rwandan. We are not Hutu, Tutsi, or Twa. We are Rwandan. And in some of the places we were where there was a great lack of security and they were being raided regularly, having people come in and destroy their crops, steal their cows, steal their babies. In one city of Dinkabor, when we talk to people, they fear the Merle coming in because they come in and steal their babies. Several groups told us this, and each group we asked, what do they do with your babies? They have no idea. They don't know what happens to the babies. One woman told us, they came and they asked me if I had a baby. I told them no, because I don't. And then they grabbed my breast and tried to milk it to see if I was lying. Anyway, that great lack of security that the Rwandans no longer have. But the Rwandans have a story from back in the 90s when they had a genocide and when they had great lack of security after the genocide. And when they had tribal issues going on, and they're able to say, you have hope. There is hope in Jesus. But we have a story where when we turned to Christ, we were able to find reconciliation and figure out how to forgive other tribes for what they've done to us. And we've learned how to have fellowship with other tribes in our churches. And we also found that our government was able to provide security. And it won't happen quickly, they said. It'll take time, but there is hope for you. Let us gather now and pray for you to have the same kind of redemption and the same kind of story that we had in Rwanda. And so they have a vision then for going in and planting churches that are amongst tribes that are unreached. They don't want to say, we're called to reach the Merle tribe. They want to say, we're called to reach this group of tribes in this region. And they want to plant churches that have all the ethnicities, all the tribes in their churches. So a big, a big exciting thing for what the Rwandans can bring that maybe are something that we wouldn't bring. But maybe it'll be a place we'll also send missionaries. So, yeah, I got lots of stories from South Sudan. Okay, so the last trip to the Dubai and Doha. EFC Nepal, the French churches in Nepal feel called to reach the Nepali-speaking immigrant groups in Dubai and Doha. In Dubai, 90% of the population are immigrant workers. And there's huge populations of Nepali-speaking people from Bhutan and Nepal. And of course, from India and others from the Philippines, especially those are the immigrant groups. But the Nepali church, but also in Columbus, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, up in Eastern region, we have huge groups of immigrants. And some of those immigrants have come from Nepal. They were some of our pastors who were in Bhutan, were in exile in Nepal, became pastors, and were trained up as leaders in Nepal, uh, in the French church, then came to the U.S. 
And now they're planting churches. They just opened the fourth church in eastern region, in Columbus area and, and Pennsylvania. The fourth one is in Pennsylvania area. They're, they're really wanting to go back and reach people, a very difficult Hindu crowd in, in Dubai. Well, anyway, and, um, as they looked at Dubai and Doha, they're coming back and saying, we think Doha is the place. And they're pretty excited. So th this is the thing I wanted to mention, is that we've had seven of the 10. So there's three more, one in December, he'll show you in a second, and two more after the first of the year, one in Brazil and one in, uh, <laughs> I lost it. Northern India, that's the one, is yet to happen in March. Anyway, uh, so far out of the seven, Every one of them has given thumbs up with the can-go criteria. They're saying they want to go. And so the think tank that gathered, we had about 50 people on Wednesday this week that met. None of them have been ruled out. Our goal is to plan at least five. We're not sure that some of them will be ready by the end of 2025. But all of them, things are coming together where we believe it's possible that God will launch. So one of the things that we really emphasize is that, you know, and I really reflected one day in my office, what will we say at the end of five years? Like, I don't know how many of you guys make goals and make a video about your goals. So we're, we're not hiding our goal. So what are we going to say at the end of five years? Are we going to be a total flop? Is it going to be exciting? We're going to have our five mission fields or what's going to happen? Are we going to have 10 missionaries? Are we going to have two? Are we going to have 20? And I realized that at the end of the five years, the real question we're going to ask ourselves is not whether we were successful, but whether we were faithful. The real question is, are we faithful? And so I want to really challenge you to think about what it means to be faithful. And it's possible that if we are really faithful as a church, when you put all 300 of our churches together, a lot of us alone, we feel like we're, we're too small for such a goal. But when you put us all together, it's possible that if we were faithful, our goal is too small. It's possible. And one of the issues that we have to understand when we're being faithful is that we have to learn how to surrender to Jesus. And, you know, that takes dying to ourselves. And it's a daily activity. You could say today that you die to yourself, and then tomorrow you take back your life. You take back yourself. So every day we have to die to ourselves, and we have to say to Jesus, here am I, send me. And so that's in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. And I, and, and I love to see the work that Pratt is doing when you look at your community, when you look at the circles, when you look at core ministries, when you look at Monday night, celebrate recovery. Um, when you look at those ministries, um, those are important parts of... Uh, of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and also your support and prayer for our missionaries. So I just want to ask you even right now, if you could just put your hands out in front of you and just as a, a, a symbol of saying that you will surrender. And we ask our future missionaries to do this. A lot of times we put our hands out and we have all these ideas and we, we close our hands with a real tight fist. And it takes a lot of energy. to hold, If you clamp your fist tight, it takes a lot of energy to do that. And so whatever our plans are for today or after Thanksgiving meal or tonight or next week or after we retire or our plans for our kids, we have to always hold those things open to Jesus and surrender and give those to him to surrender every day. And so I invite you to say this prayer if you just repeat after me. Here am I, send me. And then as you think about your families, here is my family, send them. And then the last thing, if you think about Pratt Friends, think about Mid-America, think about EFM, repeat after me, here we are as a church, send us. And we have to do that every day in our prayers. We have to surrender all those things to Jesus. So we've been talking about Luke 10 trips. So I guess we'll read a part of Luke 10. 
The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.